S.E.P. Fanfic Readings presents Aurelian by Biddy Blue Eyes Chapter 37 All in Delivery Hermione woke early Monday morning, awkwardly pinned between two warm bodies. She stared up at the ceiling as she considered her position. She was on her back with both arms bent so that each hand lay on either side of her head. Draco's body was curled against her with his head resting on her shoulder, while Aurelian curled against her other side. The top of his head nuzzled into her underarm. The arrangement made her feel quite claustrophobic and uncomfortably stiff, but she simply didn't have the heart to push either of them away. It was incredible for her to think that, only a month before, she was perfectly content going to bed alone and living a relatively solitary lifestyle. But, even despite all the tragedy that had already come upon them, Hermione could not bring herself to wish that things had continued as they were before. She loved her boys, and she could only hope for a good and swift end to the secret war they were fighting. Lost in her thoughts, it took Hermione a few seconds to realize that she had unconsciously been running her fingers through Draco's silky white hair. With curiosity, she looked down at Aurelian and ran her fingers through his hair once. She was once again astounded by what a perfect cross he was between Draco and herself. His light brown hair was quite thin, wispy and wavy. The apples of his cheeks were round like hers, while his chin was more pointed like Draco's. Aurelian most definitely had Draco's eyes, but his nose, the way it turned up ever so slightly at the tip, that trait came from her. Draco hummed softly, and Hermione turned her eyes on him once again, realizing again that she was still stroking his hair. She stopped immediately so not to wake him. Mmm, don't stop, he murmured sleepily with a small, peaceful smile upon his face. Hermione smiled in return and stroked his hair again, twirling it in her fingers as she got to the tips. Draco's smile grew. He nuzzled against her and snaked an arm around her middle. He jerked his hand back in surprise when it came in contact with another person. Draco lifted his head and looked over at Aurelian. He had forgotten that their son had asked to sleep with them before bed. You know, Draco whispered, laying his head back down and resting his hand on her stomach, I've never really been good at sharing. You know, for some reason, that doesn't surprise me, she shortled quietly. But I'm afraid you're going to have to learn. He is my son, after all. Mine, too and I don't mind sharing your affections with him. It's in bed that I want you all for myself, he said, placing a delicate kiss on her neck. And just what is it that you want to do with me when you have me alone in bed? She smiled wickedly. I didn't mean like that, Draco frowned. He did not like being misunderstood. I know you didn't, but I did, she declared smugly. You want me to tell you what I would do with you, Draco smirked. His hand moved from her stomach to her hip as he nuzzled his nose against the side of her breast. "'Maybe now's not the time,' she said, blushing deeply. "'I get the idea you're no longer opposed to—' Hermione swallowed hard, just the way he moved his hand over her hips at her body on fire. "'Opposed? Merlin, I was never opposed,' Draco told her vehemently, nearly forgetting to whisper. "'I only didn't want to rush things.' "'And now?' And now I think it's time we find somewhere else for Aurelian to sleep. And soon, Draco leaned forward again and placed a hot, breathy kiss on her neck. I, I think it's best if we leave the bed now, Hermione said, trembling slightly from the overwhelming desires he was igniting. Aurelian was up late. I don't want him to wake yet. Draco smiled against her skin, placed a final kiss to her throat, and slid backward out of bed. Hermione followed him after slowly and quietly so as not to wake the tiny sleeping boy. Morning, Katie greeted the second they stepped into the kitchen. Morning, Drigo returned. Long time no see. 
Draco was no longer surprised to find someone in the kitchen each morning when he got up. It seemed that no matter how early he woke, there was always someone there. More often than not, Potter was among them. Draco wondered if the man slept at all. Harry was there again, of course, leaning against the table as he talked to Blaze and Katie. "'Nice hair,' Blaze teased. Draco self-consciously combed his fingers through his blonde hair. He usually liked to maintain a fresh and well-groomed appearance in front of others. But at Grimmauld Place, everyone entered the kitchen in their pajamas. Blaze and Katie were the exceptions. They were not staying at Grimmauld Place. Draco guessed that they hadn't arrived more than a half hour before. They both looked rather awake, considering the sun was only just rising. "'All right, let's go through it just once more,' Harry said. "'Potter, we've got it,' Blaze said in exasperation. "'There's not much to it. We go, we watch, we wait. Whenever someone makes the drop, we take it and leave. Do you often try to complicate stuff like this?' Harry sighed and his shoulders slumped. He knew Blaze was right, but he was just concerned for everyone's safety. They all looked to him, and he couldn't afford to overlook anything. "'So,' Blaze said conversationally, "'how's the tyke like that rug?' "'Are you kidding?' Hermione smiled. "'We can hardly pull it away from him. We can't thank you enough.' He really needed it. A distraction. "'Is he a fan of the magpies yet?' Blaze asked. "'I knew that was your motive behind getting him the second team,' Draco said, shaking his head in amusement. "'It's more fun when you have two teams to play with,' Blaze replied. But, yeah, I figured that once he gets a good look at the team side by side, he'll see who the real winning team is. Yeah, the Tornadoes, Draco smirked. You know he's told us that the Tornadoes win the cup for the next five years, right? The butterfly effect, man. Things have already changed. No one knows who's going to win it now, Blaze countered. You're in denial. As the two men talked, they inched their way further from the rest of the group. They had seen each other every day since Hermione, the Malfoys, and the Weasleys had moved into Grimmauld Place, but they really hadn't spoken privately in a few days. So, are you ready for this? Draco asked seriously, his hands hidden in the pockets of his pajama bottoms. Yeah, we've got Potter's invisibility cloak. We've planned it through. Katie and I are prepared, Blaze answered. It's still hard to believe that I'm part of this whole Potter crew versus the Death Eaters thing, though. Tell me about it, Draco snickered. You still feel kind of strange around them? No, not really. Draco was rather surprised by his answer. Well, that's not entirely true, I guess. I'm definitely part of the group now, but they... I don't know. They're like family, I guess. Katie, too. Yeah, I know, Blaze answered. It was apparent by Blaze's downcast expression that he understood how Draco felt. But that's us, though, as well. Draco felt intense gratitude for those few short words. During his time at school, Draco had never really considered Blaze a friend of his, but looking back, he realized that he hadn't really known what a true friend was. Draco realized that even back then, Blaze had been one of his greatest friends. It was after the war that he truly came to appreciate Blaze, and in the time since then, the two of them had become like brothers. Pansy, too, Draco added sadly. She was part of their small family also, like a sister, only closer. It's killing me, Blaze. It's tearing me apart. I saw her just yesterday. She's so scared and knows nothing, and it kills me. I know, Blaze replied, his eyes on the floor. Believe me, I do. You do and you don't. I know you want to include her as much as I do, but she doesn't know that you know. The way she pleads with me, ugh. I don't know if she'll ever be able to forgive me. Draco rubbed his eyes, trying to calm his frustration. I'm glad she doesn't know that you're in this, though. If you have time tonight, you should go and see her. She really needs you right now. Yeah, I'll definitely go, Blaze answered. I'm really glad you're in this, Blaze, Draco told him seriously. Just be careful today, all right? 
I don't know what I'd do if anything happened to- Hey, hey, Blaze interrupted playfully. I know your heart's grown a few times bigger lately, but don't go getting sappy on me. Oh, shut it, Draco grumbled quietly. You know I'm just playing with you, Blaze replied with a lopsided smile. And you know I feel the same, so watch yourself in all this, too. Draco nodded, and the two of them glanced around uncertainly at the others who might be watching before they awkwardly pulled one another into what they considered a masculine hug. Nodding to one another, they rejoined the group. "'You ready?' Katie asked. "'You sure I can't get you some breakfast first? Harry offered. "'No, we're fine. There's a cafe near the office that opens early. "'We're going to stop in and grab something,' said Katie. "'You're leaving already?' Draco asked. "'Yeah, we're going into the office first. I've got a little work to take care of,' Blaze answered. "'Can't you just put it off till later? No one's even going to be there now,' Draco argued. "'Yeah, but I still have some things to finish up and get out. It's not much. It's mostly things I have to turn in. It's calling enough attention that I've been working from home so frequently since I got my promotion. It will look really suspicious if I don't get any work done on top of it. The last thing I want is for people to get nosy,' Blaze explained. "'I understand,' said Harry, "'and I think it's a good idea, but it's that much more time that I'm not sure of your whereabouts.' Just send me a Patronus before you head to Nocturnale, all right? No problem, Harry, but please don't worry too much. We'll be fine, Katie reassured him. Okay, that's like the fifth time you've mentioned this Patronus thing. What on earth is it? Blaze asked, his curiosity getting the best of him. Expecto Patronum! A chorus of voices rang together. Bloody fuck! Blaze exclaimed as three spectral animals swirled around him and bounded around the room. A stag, an otter, and a leopard— "'Nice vocabulary, Zabini,' Harry smirked. "'You nearly gave me a heart attack,' Blaze scolded. "'I think a simple verbal description would have been sufficient.' "'Yeah, but demonstrations are so much more fun,' Draco jibed. Hermione and Katie pressed their lips tightly closed in effort to suppress their laughter. "'Loads of fun,' Blaze said sourly. Despite his disgruntled front, he looked amused himself. "'All right, let's get going. You can play with your pet a little later. Hopefully it will scare the shite out of Potter, too.' All right, we'll be fine, Harry, so please don't worry, Katie said again. With a little wave, the two of them left the kitchen, and the three were left to wait helplessly again. Waiting while one's friends were on a mission was nerve-wracking, and kept them all in a tense state. Slowly, one by one, the rest of the house woke and joined them in the kitchen. Breakfast was rather quiet, like most of the meals they'd shared since things began happening. They tried to make conversation, discussed different things the Weasleys were doing at work, but the conversations never lasted long, and before they knew it, Ron and Arthur had to leave for work. Desperate for distraction, Hermione returned to the library to look over the Fidelius charm. She had worked on it with Fred and George for several hours on Saturday, and they had been pleased with their progress. Sunday night, they'd returned to it, and after a few more hours of work, they believed they actually had solved it. It was quite late when they finished, so they agreed to test it Monday evening. Hermione wouldn't attempt it without them, but she felt compelled to recheck their work a few more times. It was, by far, the most complex spell that any of them had come across. It was separated into four parts filled with long strings of Latin and swift complicated wand movements. Hermione was determined to be prepared. After lunch, Draco and Aurelian were able to convince her to keep away from the library and join them in playing with Ori's Quidditch toys. Though Quidditch and playing with figurines weren't things Hermione was normally interested in, it was some of the most fun she'd had in quite some time. When they were through with the toys, Hermione tried again to return to the Fidelius charm, but Draco distracted her, yet again, by asking her to teach him how to perform the Patronus charm. She was quite proud when he got the hang of it so quickly. "'Sweet Salazar, thank you,' he said with relief as a spectral eagle soared around the room. He was impressed with his success, 
but even more pleased by the form his spell took. I was afraid it'd be something stupid like a swan or a turtle. I wanted a duck, Aurelian said from his place on top of the library table. He looked a bit disappointed, but then smiled as the eagle flew over his head. I thought a ferret would be funny, Hermione smirked. Draco looked at her in astonishment, gaping incredulously. His brow was creased and he looked both amused and insulted. Wow, Granger, he smirked. You know how to pick some fighting words, don't you? Fighting words? Hermione smiled, sashaying over to him. I was just remembering what a cute little rodent you made. She dragged her finger down his jaw and leaned in for a kiss, but Draco pulled back a little. You insult me and think you can get a kiss, he teased. Fine, if I can't get one from you, I'll just take one from Aurelian, she sniffed loftily, struggling to suppress a laugh. Okay, Aurelian said, standing up on the table. Nuh-uh, me first, Draco said, pulling Hermione back as she started to walk away. His lips gently pressed hers, and they released their hidden smiles. Hermione was just about to lean in for another when a shout rang out from below. Harry! Hermione and Draco's eyes snapped to the library door, and Hermione's breathing became shallow immediately. She rushed across the room, scooped up Aurelian, and raced down the stairs. A shout like that was never good. But it was also much too early for Ron to return from work. Something serious had to have happened. Ron, what's wrong? What happened? Hermione asked urgently as she took the last few stairs and Ron met her near the front door. Harry was only two steps behind her, coming in from the kitchen. There was a break-in, Ron sighed, looking quite harried and distressed. It was at Andromeda's. Harry instantly lunged toward the front door, his wand already drawn, but Ron stopped him with a hand on his shoulder. They're okay, Harry. Andromeda had taken Teddy to the park. They weren't there when it happened. As soon as she caught sight of the door, she went to the ministry. Harry covered his face with his hand and breathed out slowly. He looked so worn. Where are they now? They're having tea with Floor at Shell Cottage. I thought they'd feel safe there, Ron answered. The house? Harry asked heavily. Everything was overturned, Ron stated, but it's intact. It didn't look like they were actually searching for anything, though. When we were sure it was secure, we had Andromeda come back to have a look. It didn't look to her like anything was missing. We put everything back in order, and she packed some things for her and Teddy. Floor has already invited them to stay. I don't know about you, but I think it's probably a pretty good place for them right now. Yeah, Harry said dolefully agreed. The squad hasn't a clue who it was, and neither does Andromeda, but I know it was them. I found this tacked to the wall. Ron held out a folded piece of parchment. When they saw the name, Ron Weasley scrawled in large letters across the front. Harry and Hermione exchanged looks, and Harry quickly unfolded the paper and read, Tell Granger we want the boy. A terrible silence fell over the room. No one knew how to respond to it. What wrong, Mummy? Aurelian asked. Hermione reached down and held the small boy's hand. Nothing, love. Ron is just back early from work. Uncle Juan played gobstones with me? He asked hopefully. Sorry, little guy, but I still need to talk work stuff with Uncle Harry, Ron said morosely. I think it's about time you settle down for a nap anyway, Hermione remarked. No, no nap, Aurelian whined. Yes, nap. You're a growing boy and you need your rest, Hermione said as she picked him up in her arms and tenderly stroked his hair. But my don't want to, he pouted. I know, but you're still going to have to, she answered, tracing her finger down his chin. She looked into his eyes with a heavy ache and settled in. What on earth could Bellatrix want with this perfect, innocent little boy? Hermione asked herself. The very idea of Bellatrix existing in the same world as him sickened her. I'll take him upstairs, Molly offered. 
Hermione spun around in surprise. She had not seen her follow Harry up. She turned further and saw that Narcissa was also there, watching and listening silently from the bottom of the staircase. Molly continued, "'Do you know where you last had the book about the sleep monkeys? I could read it to you before nap.' "'No monkeys. Sneezy dragon book? Please?' Aurelian asked. "'All right. Where's that one, then?' "'We left it in his and Ron's room,' Narcissa answered. "'We've started a little shelf for him near the door. You should find it all right.' "'My sleep in Mummy's bed,' Aurelian told her. "'Oh, you're much too big to be sleeping in your Mummy's bed all the time. "'I think it'd be good for you to nap in your own bed. "'Uncle Ron gets lonely sleeping in that room all by himself, you know.' "'Molly took Aurelian from Hermione's arms "'and started the long trek up the staircases. "'Harry's sigh sounded much like a groan, "'and his hand went to his forehead again, "'trying to rub away his growing headache. "'I don't know what to tell her. "'Andromeda.' It's the same question that's been rolling around my head since this whole thing started. Who do we tell this to? What do we say? On one hand, I don't want to start a panic. It's also dangerous for people to know too much because it makes them targets. On the other hand, it could be dangerous to be left in the dark. Obviously, Andromeda has made the list of targets. But, ugh, I don't know. I know, Harry, Ron said sympathetically. I've been thinking about it, too. Personally, I think it might be best if we just tell her that... The handle on the front door turned, and heavy door swung inward. In an instant, Harry had his wand drawn and pointed at the empty stoop. "'Want to watch where you're pointing that thing, Potter?' Blaze asked as he pulled the invisibility cloak off Katie and himself. "'Oh, thank Godric, you're back!' Harry lowered his wand and took the proffered cloak. "'How'd it go?' "'Just as planned,' Blaze responded, wiping the sweat from his brow. They were both panting from the heat. He made the drop. It was Greengrass himself.' He doesn't want to be part of this. He looked terrified, Harry, Katie reported. Good. That's good, Harry replied, his mind already planning the next steps. What happens now? Blaze asked. We meet with him tomorrow, said Ron. No warning this time, though. We just show up. You have to be careful this time, though. We don't know Greengrass like we know Mr. Parkinson, Draco warned. Blaze nodded in agreement. We will be, said Harry. As Ron said, no warning. We show up unannounced and with more people. We're going for intimidation this time. We have more knowledge going in, and we're not going to play around. Did you get the money? asked Ron. Yeah, Katie answered, pulling out a large, heavy sack of coins. How much is there? Draco inquired. We don't know. We just took it as soon as he left, and came right here, she said, offering it in the general direction. Here, Blaze offered. He opened the sack in her hands and swirled his wand around inside. Two hundred galleons. Two hundred? Hermione asked, sounding both appalled and surprised. That's fifty more than the Parkinson's. It's nearly a thousand pounds in muggle currency, and they're demanding that every three to four weeks? No matter how long she'd been in the wizarding world, Hermione couldn't help but compare wizard currency to muggle in her head. What in the world are they doing with all that money? Building an army, Ron reminded her. So when are you going to meet with them? inquired Blaze. Today, I hope. This evening. We've got some other issues now, and I need to get over to Shell Cottage here soon. Harry replied, closing his eyes as he spoke. His head was throbbing so badly and his eyes ached. Perhaps it was also lack of sleep. He made a note to himself to ask Molly if she had something for headaches, and Ginny if she had any invigoration drafts. He couldn't ask either one for both items, or they'd hand him a sleep draft instead. "'Let me know when you figured out a time. I'll join your little intimidation party,' Katie volunteered. "'I appreciate it, Katie, more than you know. But I think it's best that you sit this one out. You too, Blaze,' Harry said seriously." It's not public knowledge that you have any contact with any members of the Order right now, except for Blaze's friendship with Malfoy. 
There's both safety and opportunity in keeping your involvement secret. Who are you thinking, then? Ron asked. You know the family's all in. It's never been a secret that we stand by you. I know, Harry said with a small, genuine smile. I was thinking Bill and Charlie. Fred and George would be great also if they can just— Harry! A man's voice bellowed from the kitchen. Bloody hell, Ron's voice quivered. Can't we have a minute to breathe? Harry was halfway down the stairs before Ron even finished his sentence. Hermione urged Ron forward with a condoling pat on the shoulder. When they reached the kitchen only seconds later, Bill and Harry were already speaking. "'I was watching the stadium the whole time. I don't know when or how they managed it,' Bill said, his nostrils flaring in rage and frustration. "'But if you didn't see them, then what happened?' Harry asked, his face once again hard as stone. "'When practice was over, I went to the changing room to get washed up,' Jenny explained. Hermione stepped further into the room and finally got a good look at her. She looked pale and dirty in her harpy's uniform, but also quite fierce. Harry shuffled only half a step, and Ginny was blocked from Hermione's view again as Harry stood protectively close to the petite redhead. When I got to my cubby, I found this inside. Ginny handed a piece of parchment to Harry, and Hermione took a step back, a sick feeling returning to her stomach. It wasn't there before practice started, Bill said. I wasn't watching the door the whole time, but I still don't know how they got in without attracting attention. What does it say? Katie asked apprehensively. Tell Granger we want the boy. Ron declared it clearly. Hermione's echo of the same words were but a dreaded whisper. How did you know? Ginny asked suspiciously, looking at Ron and leaning around Harry to seek Hermione. I got one, too, Ron said gravely. Again and again, Aurelian, Harry said darkly as he read the note cover. Why? What does she want with him? Silence filled the room as images of the sweet, helpless boy in one of the rooms above surfaced in each of their minds. "'It's the notepad. It has to be,' Draco declared. "'I thought, at first, that she wanted him just to upset Hermione and me. "'But now, this is too much effort for just that. "'I think she really wants him, and badly. "'She knows we have the ring, and she hasn't said anything about it. "'This has to be about that paper she found. "'It had dates of future events listed on it. "'She has to know that Aurelian is from the future. "'It's the only thing that makes sense.' "'It does, but it doesn't,' Ginny replied. Even if she knows he's from the future, what would it help her to have him? She doesn't know about the vial of memories, Ron reminded her. She might possibly think that all that information came straight from Ari. That's ridiculous, though, Jenny argued. He can hardly talk, and she thinks he's given us specific dates and events. And even if she is stupid enough to believe that, what would it help her? Things have obviously changed already. It's not like anything he's experienced is going to help them predict anything from this point. And she knows no one would ever give him up, said Blaze. So why is she wasting her time? Exactly, Ginny agreed, gesturing appreciatively in Blaze's direction. I didn't say her thinking was logical, Draco said defensively. I was just... You're right, Hermione said quietly, her eyes staring to the distance. Without looking, she pulled out a chair at the table and sat down. She doesn't expect us to just give him up. The message isn't in the words of the letter. It's in the delivery their threats. Hermione looked up and her eyes scanned each face. Each of them watched her with solemn, reverent attention that made her feel like shrinking down further. Harry had his place as leader and no one questioned when he gave an order, but when she was the voice of logic and reason, the person that even the leader looked to for input. A room of people could be fighting to be heard over one another, but when Hermione had something to say, all stopped to listen. It was usually something she overlooked and dismissed, and possibly took for granted, but at that moment she wished she hadn't spoken at all. 
She's trying to show us how vulnerable we are, how quickly she broke the wards at my parents' home, and the break-in at Andromeda's. Hermina's voice wavered as she spoke. Many in the group silently gasped at the news of the break-in. If she wanted to harm Andromeda or Teddy, she would have timed it. I'd bet anything that she waited for them to leave. The letter to Ron was to prove that she could pull him to where she wanted. The letter to Ginny was the same. She knew where Ginny would be and snuck right in and under our noses. Whatever the reason, she wants Raelian and is sending us the message that if we try to stand up to her, she will hurt us as hard as she can until we fold. Two more similar shouts for Harry rang through the house that afternoon, both accompanied by similar letters. The letter for Charlie was left on his desk in the office at the Welsh Green Dragon Reservation, only five minutes before he walked in. Most disturbing of all was the letter for Arthur, which had been hand-delivered to the secretary on the second floor, home to the Department of Magical Law Enforcement. What better way to show fearlessness than for a Death Eater to stroll directly into the Ministry of Magic on a floor filled with Aurors and MLE squad? It was unnerving, to say the least. Discussions following Bill and Ginny's arrival became nothing more than short explanations at each subsequent arrival. An almost tangible tension hung in the air, creating an atmosphere of grave disquiet. There seemed to be an unspoken agreement to keep one's thoughts to oneself. The oppressive suspension dared each of them to speak above a whisper. But there was no need to speak, for each of them felt that they saw and they shared similar thoughts. Even Aurelian felt the restraints of the oppressive foreboding, and watched each person with quiet uncertainty. As dinner time neared, the group felt themselves pulled forward toward the sitting room. One by one, they trickled in, Fred, George, and Percy among them. More chairs were conjured as needed, but there were still some that preferred to stand. The silence was thick as they waited for Harry's return. After Arthur's arrival, Harry took his leave to visit Andromeda at Shell Cottage, and took Narcissa with them. They had agreed that Andromeda needed to be made aware of the Death Eater activity, but decided that it was better to keep news of Bellatrix's return to themselves. When he finally returned to Grimmauld Place, it was in the presence of Fleur. Despite the tension, it did something to warm him when Narcissa decided to stay with her sister for the time. Harry entered the sitting room with his shoulders held back and his head held high. It was no wonder why his Patronus took the form of a stag, for at that moment he held himself as one, solid and powerful in a quiet way. The chains on every tongue fell off, but the silence remained as no one knew where to start. "'I see nothing else for it,' Molly said finally. "'We all stay here. No work, until this is all—finished.' She spoke with motherly authority, but there was no question that she expected opposition and was prepared to fight her side. "'You know it can't be like—of course it can.' Molly snapped, cutting Ron off mid-sentence. We managed for a long time during the last war. We can do it again. I have to go to work, Mum, Ron argued gently. Now more than ever. It's my job to protect— You have to protect yourself first, Molly said heatedly. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what we're all trying to do. Protect ourselves, our families, and everyone else out there. Ron spoke with calm patience. He knew how distressing it was for his mother, and it was not his intention to upset her further. You know it's not as easy as just hiding away, Mum, Charlie agreed, borrowing Ron's delicate approach. If they can't get to us here, she'll just find another way to hurt us. I think we're all going to have to try to continue as usual. We return to work, but we surround ourselves with others at all times. I agree, said Percy, with one exception. Ginny, you— I knew it, Ginny flared, instantly on her feet with her fist clenched at her sides. It's always me. I— He's right, Ginny. And you know it's not just because you're our little sister. 
We're not playing that card this time, Bill said seriously. She saw the sincerity in his eyes and looked away, crossing her arms over her chest. For whatever reason, she tended to respect Bill over the rest of her family, which made it harder for her to argue with him. While she took the spot of the youngest in the family, the protected baby girl, Bill stood strong and proud above the rest. He was often the voice of reason, the peacemaker, and a steady, supportive presence, and Ginny knew she was his favorite. She turned to him almost as a parental figure, the way she looked up to him, but they were still close as siblings and discussed things with each other that they would not share with anyone else. "'I know you've been working hard for Wednesday's game. I know how much this means to you and your team, but we just can't let you go. Your job isn't like the rest of ours. You'd be flying solo, out in the open, with hundreds of people watching.' There's no way we can possibly keep an eye on all that many people, Bill explained. Ginny had already realized and accepted the fact that earlier that day, but it didn't keep her from feeling bitter. Her lips pursed and her eyes still averted. She huffily plopped back into her chair. She knew that she was acting childish, but it was much easier to be sour than to allow it to sink in properly. Were she to drop her bitter front, she would end up in a pitiful sobbing mess. She had been playing with the harpies for a full year— she and her teammates had pushed themselves to the limits in effort to win the cup, and they were so close. The game was of great importance to her. She knew that this secret war was of far greater importance, but it didn't stop the ache inside. Harry scanned each face and looked away when he met Molly's pleading eyes. He knew that they were all waiting to hear his opinion on the matter. I think the decision should be left up to the individual. You all know your positions better than I do, and each of you are responsible enough to decide for yourselves. As Charlie said... I think that if you return to work, you exercise caution and surround yourselves with others. Also, I know it's still summer, but I suggest that everyone wear their shield cloaks whenever they're not at Grimmauld Place. They're lightweight and stylish enough that they shouldn't draw any strange attention. Thanks, George and Fred said together. Harry smirked in return, only then recognizing the unintentional compliment he'd given them. What about meeting with Mr. Greengrass, Harry? Hermione asked. I'd like to do it tonight if we can, perhaps after dinner but I'm going to need volunteers. We want to... You can count on us, George said, gesturing to Fred and himself. Me too, said Percy. All of us, Harry, Bill told him. You know you can count on us. There's strength in numbers. Ginny, Draco, Fleur, Arthur, and Charlie nodded in agreement. Not me this time, Hermione said quietly, hugging her son on her lap. I'm staying here with Aurelian and Molly this time. Harry nodded to her, greatly appreciating her easy surrender. Us too. We'll wait here for you. Katie spoke for herself and Blaze. "'We play toys?' Aurelian asked tentatively. Every eye in the room fell sympathetically on the anxious child. "'Of course, buddy,' Blaze said with a smile. His infallible charm cut through the somber mood and coaxed a genuine smile from the tot. "'Anything you'd like.' With a slightly lighter feeling himself, Harry continued, "'Katie, I'm going to need to take that money from you. We may need it as a firm evidence, not that we had any intention of keeping it. Now Ron's better acquainted with the area than I am, so—' Hermione, Draco asked with concern. Hermione's worried expression drew the room's attention once again. She quickly shifted Aurelian onto Draco's lap and plunged her hand in the pocket of her robes, seeking out the source of the burning she felt against her leg. When her fingers came into contact with the heat, glowing papers rested where she pulled them out and immediately started shuffling through them. Where this time? Harry asked, sitting on the edge of his seat. Hermione stopped on the third sheet of paper and the answer fell flatly from her lips as she stared at the writing. Malfoy Manor. How many are there? Charlie asked, summoning his shield cloak at the same time. No, Hermione said with a shake of her head and perplexed expression. It's Pansy. 
In the short time it took her to speak those two words, Hermione had flown halfway across the room. Pansy! Draco and Blaze cried. Draco quickly transferred Aurelian to Ginny's lap and followed after Hermione. She's at the manor! No, Blaze, Harry ordered, placing a forbidding hand on Blaze's chest to stop him. She doesn't know you're with us. Harry saw uncertainty on every face, each person there waiting for her direction. Without giving an answer, Harry turned and raced after Hermione and Draco. When he entered the kitchen, his eyes fell first on Hermione. She stood near the fire with a pinch of flu powder in her hand, her shield cloak fastened in place, and a challenging look on her face. She waited for him before she used it. She promised not to leave without permission, but she was daring Harry to protest her involvement. When he made no protest, she threw the powder into the flames and vanished. "'Pansy!' Draco shouted as he stepped into the dark entrance hall of the manor. He sped quickly through the rooms, glancing in each doorway as he passed and made his way to the stairs. "'Pansy!' "'Draco!' Pansy's cry came in return. She stopped in the middle of the corridor, only a few feet from the entrance to Draco's room. Draco met her there and grabbed her by the shoulders. His gray eyes were intense with both fear and relief. "'What are you doing here? What's wrong? Is your family okay?' Draco rattled off quickly. "'I came looking for you,' she answered weakly. "'You never came back yesterday. I was worried for you. I got here and it was dark and I couldn't find your mother, Perny, or... I was afraid I'd find you. I was afraid you might be...' Pansy's words choked on a sob and Draco pulled Pansy to his chest and she instantly broke down in tears. "'Pansy, you weren't supposed to leave the house!' Draco admonished gently. "'I know, but you can't just—' "'This isn't the place to talk,' Harry interrupted. Pansy looked up from Draco's chest and finally spared some attention for the two quiet figures that stood at the end of the corridor. Draco nodded, placed a hand on Pansy's back, and guided her silently back to the entrance hall. "'Please!' Pansy pleaded as they neared the large fireplace. "'You can't—' "'Potter, why don't I—' "'Grimmled place,' Harry said flatly, his eyes locked on Pansy. "'What?' she asked anxiously. Number twelve, Grimmauld Place. Say it, he ordered her. N number twelve, Grimmauld Place, Pansy said meekly. Again, Harry commanded, throwing a handful of powder into the grate. At Pansy's apprehensive glare, Draco nodded encouragingly and urged her forward. Pansy swallowed hard, stepped into the swirling green flames, and hesitantly repeated, Number twelve, Grimmauld Place. Now you, Hermione. Harry said as he offered her the vase of green dust. He'll follow after in a minute. He? But what? Now, Hermione, Harry said firmly. Hermione looked indignant at the way he ordered her, but made no protest. She looked at Draco and silently begged him to talk sense into her stubborn friend. She didn't know what Harry was thinking, but she knew better than to ask him just then. He allowed her to go to the manor against his better judgment, and he wouldn't brook any objections that she wished to issue against his future judgments. Hermione silently took a pinch of powder between her thumb and forefinger and tossed it into the flames. With one last pleading look at Harry, she stepped into the fire to follow after Pansy. "'Where are you going, Potter?' Draco queried on Hermione's behalf. "'The Parkinson estate,' Harry answered. "'I've got to tell Mr. Parkinson that Pansy's safe. I've also got to reset the latest ward. It only works when all members of the house are staying there. But then, Pansy, she's at Grimmauld Place from now on. We'll figure it out later,' Harry answered. What are you going to tell her? Draco's inquiry held an obvious challenge, which raked a small chuckle from the otherwise somber man. Don't wait for me. It will come better from you anyway. Tell her everything, Harry said heavily. To hell with her father's wishes. She's not a child, and keeping her completely in the dark about all of this isn't protecting her. She's not stupid. She's worried. Tell her whatever she wants to know. Draco never imagined he'd feel so grateful toward his one-time foe. 
It was destroying him and Blaze to keep everything from Pansy. She was beside herself with anxiety and grief. Despite her father's insistence in the confidentiality of the situation, Draco felt she had the right to know what was happening and how it affected her. "'Thanks, Potter,' he replied solemnly. Harry paused with a pinch of flu powder in his hand and stared into the fire. Draco watched him with interest, wondering just what the raven-haired man was thinking. "'We're not enemies any more. We're allies,' Harry stated. "'Just figured that out,' Draco asked, more curious than sarcastic. "'No,' Harry answered soberly. "'But we still distance ourselves as such.' Harry turned around and, for the first time in Draco's memory, stared him straight in the eye. Harry's green eyes were sharp beneath his spectacles, but still held an intriguing sincerity. "'My name is Harry,' he declared. "'We watched memories in which we were allies for years, but I only spoke your name once before I died. So far as I know, you never once spoke my name to my face.' Draco considered the man before him, his childhood rival, a boy he had despised more than any other. At one point in his life, he considered Potter for the very bane of his existence. They weren't friends, not yet, but they were far from being enemies. They were, as he said, allies. He trusted Potter with his life, and in return, Potter trusted him not only with his own life, but those of his friends. And yet, no matter that their animosity had long died away, they distanced themselves. Potter was right. By refusing to address each other with the intimacy and informality of their given names, they kept each other at a distance. It was an unspoken agreement between the two of them, as they both feared the uncertainty and vulnerability that would come with trusting one that was once such a fierce enemy. Yet, Draco had just admitted to himself that he already trusted the man. "'My name is Draco,' he returned. "'Good,' Harry nodded. "'Now you get back. They'll be waiting for you, Draco.' Draco inclined his head. "'Harry?' Harry smirked at how odd his name sounded coming from the man who'd once spoke his surname with such venom. Finally, using the powder in his hand, he disappeared in a whoosh of green flames.